Welcome to Valley Talk. Thank you for listening to Valley 104.9 FM. We try to get some really timely topics, and I don't think there could be a more timely topic than the brand new legislative district. With me is 5th Legislative District Senator Mark Mullet. Welcome. You've been here before. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, only uh, this time, you, now what you got, a, you, the final count was a 58 count victory. <laughs> yes, yeah, so 58 votes. Yeah, 58 votes. At, and uh, at one point, they were saying one point. And uh, one of the, the people on the Valley Radio board said, tell Senator Mullet that I'm the re- I'm that one vote. You know, <laughs> that after listening to your interview last time, he, he decided to vote for you. So he, he wants credit for your victory. Nice, I like it. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you're back because I enjoyed interviewing you before and I appreciated how open you were with some of your answers. Sometimes it's difficult to get, you know, open answers. And I understand why, because, you know, gosh, every time you take a step anymore, somebody's willing to make a world war out of it. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's nice. It's important to get, you know, kind of an open response when you can. The new legislative session, um, we are looking at a number of things that people are concerned about. One is the accessibility uh, for citizens. And I've been seeing a couple of things. What are, what are you seeing? Well, how are we going to accommodate citizen input in this legislative session? Everything will be virtual, which is gonna be different. Uh, I'm not a big technology whiz myself, but I will say early indications for me so far is not necessarily a bad thing. What I've noticed in the committee hearings I've held in the last few months, the committees that I chair, I've had a lot more participation from people east of the mountains for one. And I've actually had a lot more, you know, even from our area to drive to Olympia is an hour and a half drive. And that's one way. So if you're going to go testify a committee hearing, you're really committing your entire day off work. It's a five or six hour time commitment, to be honest. Whereas now we are allowing everybody to sign up and testify in committee hearings from their home, just sitting on their computer. And so in some ways, it could be interesting. We could have more public involvement than we've had. It's just gonna be through a virtual format rather than face-to-face. Well, and so I heard some criticism about the timing, you know, the, the time restrictions for people who want to sign in and, and testify, but you get time restrictions when you go down and testify. I put everyone on a two minute timer in my committee. Yeah. I've done that for eight years, I, I think that uh, you want to give everyone a chance. To me, the most important thing is that 30 people come down, you want them all to get a chance to speak. Mm-hmm. So if you let people go on as long as you want, it basically means the majority of those people will get a chance to say nothing. And that's not fair because they drove down there. I think in a virtual world, you know, you have to, as a chair of a committee, you just have to manage your time accordingly. You see how many people signed in on every bill and you have to allot time to make sure you hear from all the people. So. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's two minutes, sometimes it's three minutes, and sometimes it's only a minute. But, you know, I think for the public, they just have to be really concise and making sure they get their important points across. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, I, I spent a couple of years going down to Olympia on a regular basis. Um, and one of the things that I think people get confused about when they go to testify is you guys don't care about their emotions. I mean, you may, and seriously, I mean, I've seen people, I, I remember once a, a pharmacist, fifth generation pharmacist owning his family pharmacy, and he was going to lose it because of reimbursement rates that the state legislature had ex- experienced. That's tragic. That's terrible. But he practically cried when he was talking about it because he felt that those legislators, those decision makers should have the same depth of feeling about his circumstances that he had. And maybe in theory you do, I mean, maybe if you just, but you can't, you cannot, you cannot cry with everyone who has a sad story. And and so you have to divorce yourself from the emotion that you're feeling when you testify. And, and I've seen that many, many times. And I think that when you, I think sometimes those of us who are not involved in politics, we think that if we can just get you to understand how significant this is, how important it is to us, that it will make a decision, a difference in your decisions and your, but it, it really doesn't, it hinders it, in my opinion. Am, am I wrong on that? Is that- yeah, I understand. It's a fine line. It's hard. I think sometimes, like you said, for some of these people, it is such a big part of their life. It's just hard. They just get emotional about it and there's nothing... I don't know. Sometimes I don't know if there's any way they can even stop that emotion, even if they tried. I don't know. It's a it's a def, it's a difficult situation. I think this upcoming session, I would encourage listeners though, if you've never testified, 
in committee, it, it can be, it can be intimidating, but I don't think it should be because you're really testifying in front of people. Like I'm at my pizza restaurant, my ice cream store five nights a week. Like I talk to our constituents in that format very casually every day. It's the same people. Like you're talking to the same people. It just seems very formal on these committee hearings, but the reality is it's a citizen legislature. I mean, these are all people who have other jobs mostly outside the legislature. And so hopefully people take advantage of this virtual session and, and do try to testify maybe for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And and I think that like many of the unintended consequences of our lockdown and you know our, our new COVID procedures, I think some of these are actually good. I think yeah. it, it's I mean, you it know be. there will be benefits and maybe one of them will be the accessibility. Excuse me, I just developed hiccups. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I sound a little disjointed, it's my hiccups. Um, Mike Lindblom in the Seattle Times wrote an article about what we could look forward to for this uh, legislative session. And one of the things that he's talking about is that the um, income tax, which we're calling a capital gains tax, it's already been um, dropped. I, well, I think they, um, who, who was it? There was um, somebody who already- uh, Yeah, I put a proposal out there. June Robinson, yeah, from Everett. Um, she already um, filed the capital gains bill, capital gains tax bill. Um, so what, what's your stance on that? What, what's going to happen with that? I mean, people have very strong feelings both ways. Obviously, the Democrats tend to be more favored, favorable toward it um, than the Republican side, which has uh, the Republican uh, speaker, I think, has already come out and said, we don't want any new taxes. But quite honestly, I mean, I'm, I've been around since Job was a baby, and I think I've heard that every year, you know, from both sides of the aisle. No new taxes, no, 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 except for this one, you know, except for that one. What about this capital gains tax? And of course, you know, people are saying, well, it's not going to be constitutional. It's against our constitution. The IRS has ruled it is an income tax. But I heard the governor say that if it passes, they're going to go ahead and start collecting anyway while it goes through court. So what's going to happen with that? I've been opposed to it. I mean, I've been opposed my whole eight years in the Senate. i super clear and transparent with people that I haven't been supporting that. That's obviously why I had a primary challenger and from the left, you know, in the last election cycle. Part of that was my opposition to the capital gains tax. I just feel our, you know, you, you have to be cognizant of there are taxes going up by statute, like specifically unemployment insurance is going up because the fund got wiped out. And, and I try to explain to my colleagues that when, you know, we're going to have to, the business community is going to have to pay a lot of money, I think, to rebuild our unemployment insurance trust fund. Uh, and it really wasn't their fault. They were forced to close their businesses by public health mandates. It wasn't a choice they had. And, and so when you start adding a bunch of new taxes on top of that, you really make the economic recovery challenging. So I think that for me, the 2021 session is let's figure out how to make our budget work right now with the resources we have available to us. And the reality is we're in a fortunate spot. We can make it work. Like if we, if we don't add new policies to the state government in this upcoming session that starts on Monday, then we don't need any new taxes. So the only reason we need new taxes is if we add new policies. And the only place I've been supporting additional taxes or revenue is if it goes into the transportation budget because I do want highway 18 fixed. I mean, to me, that's been my top priorities. I want that lane fixed. I think it's a death trap and it's a traffic nightmare. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I would like some improvements on some of the other roads throughout our, our district. But to me, that's the only place that I feel comfortable, you know, trying to figure out how to raise revenue. And that's just because I want some transportation projects, but, the capital gains tax won't, not a penny of that would go to Highway 18. I mean, not a single cent. So you could pass it and you would still not fix Highway 18. And to me, that has no interest. Yeah. Um, obviously, one of the projections for this, this uh, session is that there's going to be a lot of talk about transportation, um, even though we've had, what is it, um, driving slash 15% and 60% uh, of transit ridership went away with COVID. Um, but apparently there's still a push for, uh, the carbon tax and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, where is the balance between the practicality of people on their cars in roads and what they need and what we would like to see down the road as far as ecology and uh, emissions, et cetera? I know, it's really tough. I mean, I will say I supported the 2015 transportation package and, uh, and I just had to be honest with people. That involved a gas tax increase of 11 cents. So the gas tax went up in that 2015 package by 11 cents. Uh, our district got $150 million to redo the interchange with Highway 18 and 990 in there. And we're going to break ground on that hopefully in the next year. Uh, there's extra lanes that went in in our district between I-90 and Issaquah and Bellevue on I-90. I don't know if you've driven that road lately, but you can see the extra lane on each side of it. Road construction is finishing. Hopefully those lanes will be open by the spring. Uh, the reality is without the gas tax, you couldn't have done those projects. I mean, there was no way to do them. The, and so this is the challenge we find is you can pay money to invest in your roads and maintain them so you can get to and from work quicker, or you can just not pay more, but then you're going to be stuck in hours and hours of traffic as you try to drive around or go to and from work. And that's the trade-off I think we have to find as policymakers. I feel the transportation investments, when I talk to the people that I represent, those are usually the ones where they're like, that's one of the reasons we need government is we need good roads so we can get to and from work or, or to and from to see our families. And if the road system isn't functioning, it's kind of like, man, government's really screwing up. And so I'm trying to, where I find a lot of the waste in government isn't and what we're doing to maintain our roads, I find it in other areas of the government where I see a lot of waste and I try to focus on not supporting those programs because I don't think they're essential or necessary, but I do view transportation as one of our kind of essential government programs that we really have to get right. And, and we have to, and that involves, you know, because there are people that just want to say, let's not add any more roads and we'll create so much traffic misery that everyone will just give up trying to drive their car around <laughs> choice. You know what I mean? And I think that's a horrible, to me, that's just going to lead to a bunch of jobs moving elsewhere in the country. Yeah. You know, if we can't keep up with the population growth to make sure our roads still move and function, we will no longer attract new employers to this region. It's that simple because nobody wants to work in a place that they have to drive an hour and a half to get to and from work every day. Well, one of the arguments that has been put forth for uh, an income tax, a state income tax, is that all of our other taxes are very regressive. They're not fair. They take a disproportionate amount from people who have less money. Isn't the gas tax a good example of that kind of a tax as well? I mean, you're 100% you're correct. I mean, it's, it's a tough one. The gas tax is definitely, I think, it is has a regressive nature to it. It's very accurate. I think my fear, my opposition to the income tax has always been, um, I feel if it was passed here, you wouldn't see a reduction in a lot of other taxes. You would just see it oh. as revenue and additional taxes. So that's been my opposition to the income tax. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. The gas tax is regressive, but my experience has been that even though it's regressive, at least you're seeing that the money does get spent on things that are meaningful and important, like making it easier for people to get to and from work. And so by investing in your roads, there's not the 18th amendment of the Washington state constitution says gas tax money can't go anywhere else in the budget, except on our roads. It's the only place it can be spent. And so for me, that's why I supported that tax six years ago was I had confidence that the money would be spent in a way that would be meaningful. It wouldn't be flittered away in a bunch of random projects with pie in the sky ideas. It would be spent on like repaving roads or building new lanes and, and things that I know are going to help people. And so. It's always a Solomon's choice, isn't it? On all of these things. Um, I always say when I'm criticizing or interviewing a politician, I always say, you know, that being said, I'm glad I'm not the one having to make the decisions, you know? um, because it's really, how do you make that right decision? Um, speaking about the uh, transportation issue, um, King County has come out the last three years that I'm aware, saying that money will run out, and I think three years ago they said it would be in five years, for rural road repair. 
And if you read the fine print on some of the things that they hand out, one of the little things they say is, well, we're not going to be able to get the money to, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, uh, we're not going to be able to have that money to do rural road repair, which of course includes bridges and everything, not just potholes, um, until that 1% property tax cap is gone. If we can get that gone, then we'll get the money for rural road repair. When I talked with, uh, when I interviewed some King County people a while ago, I said, well, if you're short on money, this is a safety issue. Isn't there an abundance in the general fund? Because about a year ago, they had an overabundance that they hadn't counted on. Why can't we channel some of that money to road repair? Oh no, I was told the general fund goes for other things. Well, I asked, is there a law that says it can't go for road re repair? Well, no, but no. And I, so my response was so that we, we don't really have a problem with funding for road repair. We have a problem for allocation of funding for road repair. Um, that didn't get me very far in the interview, as you can imagine. Um, but it, it, it does strike me that when I've had these discussions with different county representatives, their response is that it's the state's fault. The state doesn't uh, help with rural road repair. Apparently the state does help with urban road repair. Um, my suggestion was, well, gosh, if you're talking about, uh, this was before COVID when they were talking about charging people per mile on, on the city streets to go to Seattle, why can't we charge all those people in the urban areas to come when they come out to the national forests or to the wineries on the weekends? Let's charge a toll there. But I don't think anybody thought I was serious. I was, but I don't think they thought I was. <laughs> anyway, the, my point is, you know, we live out here in the rural areas. We're being told there's not going to be money for road repair. So whose fault is it? Yours, the county's? Whose fault is that? Well, I think first, going back to your question on the property tax, the 1% cap. I mean, I don't know anybody in our district who feels that their property taxes are cheap right now. <laughs> and so to me, we've had a huge increase in our property taxes. And so I'm opposed to lifting the 1% cap. I think it's essential now more than ever, because all I see is people getting priced out of their homes. Right. And property tax increases. So I do not support that being lifted. And I like the cap in place. Now, you bring up a valid criticism, I think, that when it comes to rural roads, the state should do a better job, I think, of supporting rural road investment. And I think this is something I've been working on. To be honest, I've worked on it with Representative Bill Ramos, my, my housemate uh, down in Olympia from Issaquah. And I think the idea is if we do a transportation package this year, we should have some flexible dollars in there that go to the county. But rather than let the county determine where those dollars go, I think we should say those dollars have to be spent on unincorporated roads. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, I think what happens is if we just give King County a pot of money, obviously the urban people have the majority of the seats on the King County Council. And mm -hmm. so they will take that money for their roads. And so I think when we push money out in this 2021 transportation package, it's essential for us to say this pot of money is for unincorporated roads only. And if it says unincorporated only, that's how you're going to get money out into the fifth legislative district because we have the majority of the unincorporated roads in King County. Yeah, I mean, that's the ones where they're not incorporated cities. These are just towns and communities that have been there for a long time and the roads don't get the support that they need. And so I think we as a state just have to be smarter about the strings we attach to the dollars that we push out in the 2021 transportation package to make sure that unincorporated roads in every county in the state, to be honest, get some resources for improvement. And hopefully that's one of the policies that gets to the finish line in the transportation packages here. And it is a valid criticism. We have not put those strings on the money before. So we will send money out to counties, they get to spend it how they want. And usually the unincorporated roads get screwed when that happens. That yeah. Something? Well, I think uh, uh, the unincorporated urban, you know, rural areas tend to get screwed anyway, um, because as you pointed out, quite simply, there are more of them than us. So yeah. of course they're going to see things through their their glasses, their vision. Um, just like Council member Kathy Lambert, she does a bang up job. I've seen, I mean, she fights for these rural areas that she represents in our part of King County. And I give her a lot of credit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's Kathy, fighting her ass off for them. And so, yeah. Uh, 
but, there, but she also has to play the game. She has to be part of the group. You know, I mean, she has to to be effective. You can't just be an outlier. You ha- you have you can fight for well. <laughs> I'm telling. I'm preaching to the choir here. You can fight for what you believe in, but at some point you have to go. Well, I I can't accomplish anything if I'm not part of the group. Um, so there again, another well, you know, Solomon's choice for for all of you guys that are decision makers. I want to talk about some legislation that you've proposed um, already. I, I, is it one or two bills that you have? I've done a few. A few? <laughs> I don't know which one you're going to mention, but I, I, I guarantee I will know what it is. So just go ahead. <laughs> well, um, you tell you went in partnership, and I'm looking through my my notes here um, on um, uh, school recovery. But the one yeah. that I'm looking at our clock, and I want to make sure we have time to cover. Uh, the emergency powers. Yes, Bill. So I was one we'll of the bills. Jump right today. to that one, and if we have time, we'll come back to the school. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's all about the the point of the bill is saying that the governor can do his emergency stuff for thirty days. For the majority of these proclamations, he's had to come back and get approval to extend them from the legislature, and we make that process really simple. We say as long as all four corners. So that means House and Republicans and, I mean, Democrats and Republicans and the House and the Senate. So that's four people. If they agree that that policy makes sense and we should extend it, then it gets extended. And that's what we use the majority of our emergency proclamations. Now we've had these other emergency proclamations, specifically the business closures that have not been subject to that four corner approval. And so the business closures, as we've seen, Businesses got closed again in November and they're still closed today. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just pisses me off because that does not have support from the legislature. There has never been a four corner approval of those business closures. The 30 days is long since passed. And this bill would say, if you can't get four corner approval, then after 30 days, your emergency powers have lapsed and the businesses get a reopen and and if he feels the legislature has the votes to keep it closed, well, then you call the legislature into session and you have the vote. And I want to find out, like, you know, I filed a bill with Senator John Braun, a Republican from Centralia yesterday, that the bill is super simple. It just says next week, everyone goes to phase two. You know, Ensley's starting everybody in phase one mm-hmm. next Monday. And I'm saying we can't spend another one or two months trying to figure out if we're going to be able to reopen, you know, indoor fitness or indoor dining at our restaurants and these other important business activities. Uh, and I'm trying to get these businesses reopened as quickly as possible. I think they can be open safely. That's just my belief. Mm-hmm. And I think the government shouldn't be focused on closing down businesses. We should be focused on making sure those businesses are operating as safely as possible. It's that simple. That's my fundamental disagreement. I think with the governor's plan of how he's put it forward and how I would like to see the legislature, you know, take their control where they can. And that control should be, let's have an up or down vote on this latest round of business closures. And if you want to vote to keep them closed, you're going to have to own that vote to your constituents. And if, but no more dodging the vote. We, we haven't been in session since those businesses got closed way back in March. Monday will be the first time we're in session. And I really strongly feel that we owe it to the people we represent to have a vote on these business closures. And I know I will vote to reopen them. I think they can be reopened safely. I think that uh, you'll have to tell me how popular you feel that measure is, because I've spent the last several months interviewing citizens as well as politicians, all of whom, I mean, at the beginning of COVID, it was like, oh, yes, we'll have a special session. Uh, oh, yes, we'll have a special session. And these are people from both sides of the aisle. Um, and then as the months wore on, it was like, well, I think we're going to have a special session. Well, maybe we'll have, okay, well, when we have the next session, you know, <laughs> I mean, there was, my sense is that people were kind of shocked that there wasn't a special session called. We're one of the only states in the whole country not to have one. And uh, obviously I was super vocal in calling for a special session. I think that played a huge factor in the fact that the governor, you know, came out against me in my last election. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I feel sorry for you because whenever you're in a situ- an adversarial situation like that, you know, I mean, it makes your job tough. Uh, and I'm assuming that you you say your job is the same as mine to represent the people who elected you. 
Um, and so, or is the same, not, not the same job as mine, but the same definition as mine, um, that your job is to represent the people who elected you. And if they don't happen to agree with the governor, but you guys are both the same party, too bad. You're representing the people that elected you and they're counting on you to represent them. And I think these, I know, I think we've shut down the businesses and to me they're there isn't the the spread of the the virus has been through a lot of interactions people have in their own private homes and uh, and the decisions they make there, and we're punishing businesses who have been operating as safely as humanly possible and have not been a source of the spread. And I just think it's unfair. And so we'll see. We have a couple bills. They're addressing similar topics. I'm I'm a co-sponsor of both bills. One deals with emergency powers. One is really a bill that's only 24 hours old. We just filed it yesterday. And that's the bill that says come Monday, everyone should go straight to phase two in the governor's plan. And, uh, and if they start screwing up and the cases go crazy, they would have to go back to phase one, but it's basically flipping it around where he puts everyone in phase one. And then we have to wait and see if we ever get to phase two. And we did that back in the spring and it was a painful waiting process <laughs> to be stuck in. And I, uh, these businesses cannot survive another one or two months of being closed. No, most businesses can't. And I'm seeing several businesses that are defying the orders and they're being heavily, heavily hand slapped because of it. Um, most of these businesses, I think there's one down in Chehalis and whether you agree or not, I mean, my, my feelings are, Hey, I'm, I'm in a high risk group. I'm not going to go into your restaurant, no matter how wonderful it is. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that my 20 year old kid can't, you know, I, I, that kind of thing. So I, I think that what I'm seeing right now is that for the businesses that did decide to continue under the conditions as they were before, you know, at the beginning of November, before they were withdrawn again and drawn back, that boy, the state's coming down hard on them. Uh, big, huge fines. Now there's court cases. They're talking about jail time. Um, how, Really? Do we really need that? And really, I, I use California as an example of why I don't. I'm a little nervous about the path the governor's chosen for this one because in California they've had very strong restrictions for a long time. They had them pretty much all of last year, and eventually, what happened we saw in California is that people just kind of gave up and they started just doing everything in their own private homes, and uh, and you saw one of the largest outbreaks of any state in the country in California. And that's a place that had these really heavy restrictions for an extended period of time. I, I'm a firm believer that our government focus should be making sure the businesses are as safe as possible. That means you require the mask. I believe in the mask. I am not some person out here denying that masks are critical and important to prevent the spread. I just think that you can have a business open, customers wearing masks, people spread apart, capacity restraints. I believe in those like limit the capacity of the restaurant so they're not at maximum capacity. These are all common sense things. And, and I think we can reopen the businesses this month and get people back to work and, and do it safely. I had the privilege of interviewing our state auditor, uh, Pat McClary, is it? Um, McCarthy, Pat, yeah, Pat yeah, McCarthy. McCarthy, I'm sorry, Pat, Pat McCarthy. Um, the other day, and um, she explained she was a wealth of information on, on the process, but we talked a lot about the Employment Security Department. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. Um, <laughs> um, her audit, the, the first audit that they came out with found some a couple of glaring uh, problems. Uh, the audit that she said they're working on right now should be done in March is a performance audit. That I think is gonna tell us a lot more. Um, one of the things that I've been yammering on and on about is throughout my long, long, long life, I have not ever seen a fiasco at that level where somebody's head didn't roll. Now you could argue, was it the right, was it just a fall guy or was it the person responsible? You know, I mean, who knows, but somebody was held accountable for something. Nobody has been held accountable for anything in our employment security department. When I was talking with our outgoing state treasurer, he said, and I hope I'm not misquoting him, he said that the treasurer oversaw the budgets for all the state departments except employment security. Well, that's that, what Dwayne said. That's interesting. Yeah. I, now, I may, now, again, you know, forgive me if I'm misquoting him or misremembering him, but it struck me because I said, well, who does that, who oversees that budget? And he said, the governor's office. 
And I went, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, what What's the deal with employment security and how is I that going to be impacted by this legislative session? No, so I chair the, the audit committee in the Senate is one of the ones that I'm the chair of. So I've worked with the state auditor's department on their audit of the employment security department. And to be honest, they were super frustrated because they weren't getting the answers they normally get when they do an audit of a state agency. Uh, we had to eventually, they went public with their frustrations because they were, ESD was so slow in giving them responses. And, and it's just been super frustrating. I mean, it's at some point, our job in government is to execute and do it well. And they made a huge critical mistake in the spring, remover, removing the requirement you have two factors to determine if somebody's who they say they are. And when they went down to just having one factor, that's where all the fraud came in. And that, like you said, when you make a decision like that and you cause that amount of fraud, people deserve to lose their jobs. It's that simple. That's how the world works. And, and so I think it was political reasons that nobody's lost their jobs over the errors that occurred in our employment security department. I don't think it's for any good policy reasons. And that's been frustrating. And I think, uh, you know, not to switch, but in a similar, I'm having similar frustrations with our vaccine rollout right now. I mean, we're 40th in the country on the vaccine rollout. We knew this was coming. We have to figure out a way to execute these things and deliver to make sure government's doing the stuff people expect us to do and doing it well. And so, you know, sometimes I feel a sense of frustration that, you know, at the state level, we could do a better job. Clearly, employment security department could have done a much better job in 2020 than they did. Right now, as we sit here today, our vaccine rollout could be doing a much better job than it is in terms of getting shots in arms at a quicker pace. And so those are challenges that we need to address the first week of the legislative session. I mean, we've been shut out of this process for 10 months, and I want to go into the session on Monday asking those difficult questions, like, what are we going to do to fix the Employment Security Department? What are we going to do to get our vaccines rolled out quicker? Like, let's not be down here asking a bunch of small bills off on the side that someone's pet project is. We talk about the big issues early and, and figure out solutions. So the state's doing a better job of executing, getting it done. Well, I think what you say is very, very important. And I think it's also important that we do it as a body of elected officials. Um, even uh, what I've been saying is even if you agree 100% with the way everything's been handled so far, I, I think that, you know, we elect a bunch of officials, not just one or two. Um, and I personally... Uh, would like to see all of those minds getting together uh, for decision making, or at least you know discussion about decision making. So, um, so that's I think, and I'm again I'm speaking for myself here, but that's been a frustration for me. It's like, wait a minute, we have more than just one or two thinkers. You know, we we have a whole legislature, um, and presumably they have a whole bodies of people that they consult with and talk with, and you condense that all down when you make decisions. That's my opinion anyway. Um, one of the things that we didn't talk about, we have a couple minutes left, and I think schools are so important right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the bill that you uh, co-sponsored, I think? Uh, about yeah, it was saying that the second any county goes below 5% positivity rate, you have to go back to in-person learning right away for all the kids. And the reason we, so that bill chose a different metric than what the governor's been using. He's been focused on cases per 100,000 We've always felt that that actually provides a disincentive to do more testing because the more testing you do, the more people you're going to catch. That's just simple math, right? Uh, so the idea of this bill was to change the reference point to the positivity rate, saying the second you have fewer people testing positive, now there's no disincentive to do a lot of testing of everybody because you're going to obviously capture people. But if you're doing, if you're testing twice as many people, but only 4% of them are positive. Well, to me, that indicates that you're in a better spot and all the kids from back in school. Now the positive on the school front, since I dropped that bill, uh, there's been huge progress on getting our kids back in school, huge progress. I mean, every district I represent currently has a plan to get the kids back into school in the next month. And that's, you know, as somebody who has six kids in the public school system right now, that's been extremely important to me. And I consider it one of the things where I'm really proud that I've been 
a squeaky wheel on that issue for the last four months because we're making progress and uh and it's you're gonna get kids back in school in the next month and uh and i'm excited about it well and we are making progress i mean you know three or four months ago we weren't even talking about it so you know th that's cool um growth management act that hasn't gotten a lot of publicity lately and a lot of talk but it's definitely still a big thing and uh the senate majority leader uh, uh i believe he's he, the one who proposed that um changing the legal framework for the gma uh that would allow development rights to vest before the environmental impact of a certain of uh, certain planning actions can be determined do you know anything about that at this point and how that might imp impact the snoqualmie valley if it gets through i i don't the uh to me the main challenge with gma stuff is we have to make sure we're not making it too difficult to build housing in the puget sound region i think it fundamentally this is our challenge is housing costs are exploding because it's really hard to, to get the permits and get through the process to build new homes and so by the time you're done those homes are so damn expensive that most people can't afford to buy them and, and so i think our challenge from a government level is we want to we need more housing in this region it's that simple and we want to make sure we're partnering with people who want to build the housing to make that process as easy as possible not as miserable as possible and so i don't know the specifics of that bill that you referenced uh there's been a lot of bills pre-filed i haven't looked through them all i'll do that on monday when i see what's out there the full lay of the land from everything that's been pre-filed in the last month but uh the to me the main focus for the legislature in 2021 when it comes to growth management act is don't make it more difficult for people to build a home in the puget sound region if you do i think you're going to just drive up housing costs even more and that's my fear well, and I'm, I'm sure I probably have whined to you. I, I can't think of a single person in the state that I haven't have missed and my whining about the Growth Management Act, but I have five acres with my one little house on it. And I, I'm surrounded by three quarter acres, but I'm in that area. And I tried for 15 years to get the county to let me sell off one acre. But apparently, apparently the deal is that if I sell off one acre for one house, I will be single-handedly totally destroying the entire ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that you know, uh, and of course it has to do with mitigation fees and all that kind of stuff. But how can you justify allowing you know a two hundred unit uh, a housing complex to go up, but not one house on one acre? I, I don't understand how that is so single mindedly excluded. Um, I, I think that well, anyway, okay, I'm whining. I think those issues are going to be revisited. I mean, and, and that's. It's been politically difficult to revisit anything in the Growth Management Act. It's been like a third rail of politics for the yeah. eight years I've been in the Senate. Uh, but they have to be revisited. It, it should be an an ongoing document that you update and make better, not a stale document that just gets worse and more painful exactly. as you go on. And, and I think the areas where people thought these are way outside the zone, well, now at this point, 20 or 30 years later, those places are actually very close to employment centers. Yeah. And they could be good uses for housing and we need housing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm looking at the clock. I'm well aware that you have to have a hard break in about three minutes, but what should we, in the last couple minutes, what should we be looking at um, in our state legislative session this, this time? What, what should we out here in the hinterland be looking at? <laughs> I mean, for me, the ideal, there's three big things I would really like to see out of this session. I really want to happen as early as possible. You know, first I want to get the businesses reopened safely. And to me, that's been number one. Two, get the kids back in school safely. That's been number two. And number three has been get the transportation package passed. Because, you know, we can borrow money right now at 2% interest rates. I've never seen that opportunity during my time in elected office for the us to borrow money on projects that 2% interest rate. So I think we should take advantage of the low interest rate environment, you know, fix highway 18. Let's, let's make that a four lane highway all the way from Snoqualmie to Maple Valley. And we're in an environment right now because, you know, people are out of work and you can borrow money cheap and let's take advantage of that. And let's fix some of these roads that need fixing. 
and get it done. So that to me would be an ideal legislative session. And you don't have, you know, the other new taxes you were referencing, like a capital gains tax or a new payroll tax and all these other things. But you really focus on getting businesses open safely, kids back in school safely, and let's invest in our roads so people can get to and from work quickly. Senator Mark Mullet, thank you very, very much for sharing this little update and what we should be looking at and what's gonna maybe happen during this legislative dis uh, uh, session. Uh, I appreciate your time and I hope that you'll find some time to come back periodically and let us know what's going on. All right, thank you very much. I really right. Thank you very much. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Valley talk and information. Well, Jay, you just heard my interview with Senator Mark Mullet from the 5th Legislative District, which of course is including Carnation and down south. Um, he, he's the, as you know, and as we discussed during the interview, he was the one that went into a recount and he finally won his seat, his third, you know, his third term as a senator by 58 votes. Uh, so it was a squeak, squeaker. And um, I'm, I, I'm glad he was able to come on and talk with us. One of the things that um, he talked about are his plans for the coming year, uh, what he would like to see happen. And of course, there's so many things that we talked about, you know, the potential capital gains tax, you know, that kind of thing. I was kind of heartened by, of course, I'm, I, I'm very parsimonious, as you know, Jay, I don't like paying too many more taxes. I think I pay enough. And um, so I was kind of heartened when he said that he was not in favor of a capital gains tax, that that is not something that he wants. No. Um, what did you think about that? It, it, did that disappoint? Were you happy to hear that? Or Well, it's hard to get disappointed when elected <laughs> officials talk about not in being in favor of a tax. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, I'm always, I'm always happy when, uh, when perhaps there's someone who's thinking properly. You know, you can tax people to oblivion if you, especially businesses and businesses are hurting enough right now. So, well, that's it. I think that's the attitude that so many people have right now uh, in our state is, well, you know, the government, the coffers aren't full. And so therefore we have to tax more to get the coffers full. Yeah. Somebody once said to me that the only way a government has to get money is by taking it from its citizens. It doesn't yeah. hold a bake sale. Um, or a garage sale to get money. Um, I'm beginning to think it's probably not a bad idea for them to get out there and hold that bake sale, quite frankly, and, and leave some of the, especially small businesses alone. I know I've been hearing from some people that they've gotten their new uh, tax rates for unemployment insurance. And one person said his was over 200% increase. Huge, that's huge. And when he's still only operating at less than a quarter percent occupancy, well, they don't, you know, who knows? Anyway, it's tough. So I, I was glad to hear him say that he's not going to support that tax. He of course is interested and uh, he obviously already has filed some, some bills that he would like to see passed on putting all businesses back to phase two instead of rolling back to phase one, which is what the right. governor did last week or, you know, yeah, last week. Um, he also introduced a bill um, um, getting kids back into school and, and both of those bills he did with other, other legislators. Um, but he's also, and this one kind of intrigued me, he's also introduced legislation that would put limitations on a governor's um, ability to uh, issue emergent, operate under emergency orders. Um, that it would have to be that 30 days um, and then they'd have to go back, uh, the governor would have to go back and uh, do get approval from what they call the four corners, Democrat, right. Republican, um, House and Senate, um, in order to extend those those things. I think that sounds wise. What do you think? What, what do you think the chances are of, of any of those uh, happening? I mean, uh, it seems to me that the governor is sort of enjoying his power uh, the, uh, the, the need to get, to get, uh, approval, I don't think is something he's going to look very kindly on. He, I think he sort of enjoys being able to wield his, his unlimited power right now. Uh, you know, does, does, uh, Senator Mullet have enough, you know, I don't, I don't know, does he have enough help uh, to push through bills like those? Well, of course, these things are usually divided on party lines, and a lot of people think, well, if it's a Democrat governor, I don't like it. If it's a Republican governor, I don't like it, you know, right. but they don't necessarily see those as universal, um, depending on what party they're affiliated with. So that is a concern. 
But I think that um, I interviewed, as you know, in the last six months, a lot of our representatives and our legislators. Yeah. And I was right at the beginning of March, you know, everybody, uh, mostly, you know, Democrats, you know, it didn't matter. They were saying, oh, yeah, well, we'll have to have an emergency session. We're going to have to have an emergency session. And then, then as the months wore on, I was getting, well, we most likely will have an, uh, an emergency session. And then pretty soon it was like, well, when we have our next regular session, right. uh, it just, it, it seems to me that most people were expecting. And in fact, we are the only state in the nation that didn't have an emergency legislative session. So that says something to me. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it, I don't think people are, are looking at it as a, as a high priority. No, they, I mean, I feel very much like the state's just drifting, and I don't know what they're what we're waiting on. We're, you know, there's there's other states around the country that have attacked the problem, put in plans, and gone after it, put in timelines, and done things with it. I mean, you look at a state like Florida, for example, and what DeSantis is doing in Florida. I mean, he's he's got he's got people lined up. He's doing vaccinations. You know, he's getting the people. Uh, the, I was hey, having to visit Florida a couple months ago. I was shocked. I got off the plane from Washington uh, into the state of Florida and it, 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 things were relatively normal down there. I mean, you could go to a restaurant. Yeah, people were wearing masks and they had uh, social distancing in, the, in the, the tables, but you could go in, you could get a meal in a restaurant. You know, uh, you could go to a store. Uh, they had life relatively normal considering that it was in the middle of a pandemic and their rate of... Uh, their rate of, of um, COVID does, I don't think is all that much higher per capita than what it is here, if at all, it might even be less. Um, but just some, some governors are taking the bull by the horn and they're just saying, all right, we got to get life back to normal. And I think he, he's done that. And then you have California and Washington where it's sort of like, well, let's just clamp every, down on everything and keep everybody indoors. And, and uh, you know, maybe someday it'll all go away. And I, I was more intrigued by... Uh, by uh, Senator Mullet's comments about getting the kids back into school. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm excited to see that happen. But remember, even that has its own difficulties because they're not going to come back to 25 and 30 person classrooms. They're, they're going to come back with 10 kids in a classroom, likely. You know, uh, you know, it'll be at least half, maybe third size of classrooms. Well, guess what? That means we need more teachers. We need two times as many teachers or three times as many teachers, right? Right. Not the kids in the classroom without a teacher. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of all along been, been part of the, been part of the agenda. How do we get, how do we get more teachers hired? You know? Wow. That's an interesting take. Well, of course the WAA is against going back to school. They don't... Unless, unless they can get twice as many teachers on the payroll. Well, I haven't heard that. You know, I mean, I do know that the Seattle school district um, petition, the WA, I believe it was the, the teachers union uh, appealed to have Seattle school teachers bumped up on the priority list for the uh, distribution of um, the vaccine. Vaccine. Well, I mean, I, I have no issue with, with that. I think that anyone that is potentially a risk, and I'm not so sure teachers are, but, you know, let's presume that they are for a moment. That's, that's fine. They're, you know, they're entitled to the vaccine as everybody else did. I think is, but you know, I I'm really concerned about the long-term damage we're doing to our kids just by taking them out of socialization. I mean, we're tra we're training a generation that their whole that their whole socialization is by looking at a looking at a computer screen and their education by looking at a computer screen. Mm -hmm. That can't be good for interpersonal relationships. Well, and, and as you know, I tutor students. I tutor high school students and, and a couple of the uh, junior high students. And boy, it, you know, their attitude. I mean, I think that we've been teaching our students to be afraid for a right. long time, for a long time. And yeah. this is not helping. I mean, I, I, I literally have had conversations with my students saying, you do understand that this is not the worst thing that can happen. There right. have been a lot of worse things. You know, you still have your internet, you still have the telephone, you still have this, you still have that, you still have your family. You know, it, it is not, you know, gloom and doom and disaster, but yet that's how they're perceiving it. Um, and I think we're fomenting that for these students by not allowing them back to school. I don't know, quite honestly, I don't have kids that school age anymore. Um, 
So I don't, I don't know uh, if I share your ideas about the school classroom, but I do think that we are not paying enough attention to that residual damage that's happening uh, culturally. So that's interesting. One of the things that really spoke to me, and of course, because I have a personal issue about it, um, is his um, conversation about the uh, Employment Security Department. Yeah. Uh, as you know, I interviewed our state auditor who's doing a series of, her department is doing a series of three audits of the Employment Security Department. They came out with the one, the financial one, um, a few weeks ago. And uh, in March, they're going to come out with the next of, in the series of three, which is a performance audit. It's not a money audit. It's how did you perform? And that one, I think, is going to be real interesting. Um, Real interesting. And when I spoke with Senator Mullen about it, he he did mention that it's kind of a rare thing for a, a, a state auditor to kind of slap the hands of the department. And yet our state auditor kind of went public saying, you know, come on, guys, you've got to cooperate here. Stop, stop holding things secret. Stop, you know, keeping things from us. And that's an interesting phenomenon. And when I said that, you know, in my experience, I've never seen a fiasco like this where somebody's head didn't roll. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you could argue whether it was the right head that rolled um, or somebody just being a fall guy, but somebody, somebody gets the ax or something like that, but not in that department, not in that department. And I find that fascinating. Um, have you ever seen a situation where there was a, a mess up like that? And I'm not a, assigning particular blames or whatever. I'm just saying that when these mess ups occur, Usually somebody falls for well, it. Well, there should be. I mean, the, the, the checks and balances don't seem to be checking or balancing. That's, you know, that's the problem. They're just There's a lot of entrenched entrenched people uh, doing entrenched things. And it's it really is almost an impossible task to get those that have power out and those that have, have a tenure, those that are doing that, you know, doing a job to unseat them, no matter how bad. And they screw up. It just, you know, it's almost like it's a, it, it's the right to continue to do the job regardless of whether they do it poorly. Well, and I think we saw that with the, with Senator Mullet, you know, he was, uh, yeah. um, he came up against the governor because he did not support uh, legislation that the governor proposed and that the Democrat party supported. And when he said, no, my constituents do not want me to vote in favor of that boy, he got in trouble. And that's when they found somebody to run against him, even though, you know, uh, so it's almost, uh, you know, it's kind of scary to me to think that a, you know, it's such an old boys network. I, you know, I I don't, I don't get it. Well, it's, it's, it's a, you know, they're treated, they treat it, they treat government jobs like an entitlement, you know, once you're in, you're in and you can't do anything wrong, you know? Yeah. Um, I was going to be snarky and ask you how you like, how do you feel wagging the dog right now? Because we're the certain, we're the tail, you know, they're the dog and we, it's a, it's a heavy lift, but. Uh, well, I almost, I almost mentioned to him about, I remember days back in the day where you guys were public servants and we were your oh, yeah. bosses. Remember people yeah, exactly. saying things like that? Once, once, once upon a time they worked for us. Yeah. 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 I just, I just hope we can keep them happy so they don't get mad at us. Yeah, yeah, because they wield a lot of power. Right. Well, we have a bit of a jaded view, don't we, between the two of us? I guess, um, I guess I, so. But I am, I, I am excited to see the. Honestly, my, it, the biggest thing I got out of the whole the, the whole conversation was that maybe there's a little light at the end of the tunnel for the kids because I really feel bad about this generation of kids. I think, you know, you know, th- this is a one year chronological, but it could be a five year setback. Yeah. You, you, especially in some of the age groups, you know. Uh, there's some age groups out there where these kids are learning. Well, not really learning, but they're being told they're learning by staring at computers and they, sh- they shouldn't be. They should be in classroom interacting with each other, with the teacher and with each other and learning life skills. And they're not learning life skills looking at a Zoom. And well, I-, I agree with you. And I, and I think that, you know, one of the things that has been uh, bothersome to me is, as you said, and even if you agree with the steps that the governor has taken, I have a problem with one person making those steps. Right. I I don't know about you, but when I fill out my ballot, I'm voting for several people, not just one. And yeah. I kind of like the idea that all of those people 
would be involved or at least have input in decision making. So I'm glad we have a session that's starting and um, let's let's keep watching. We're going to watch it closely and see what transpires. Uh, one other thing that we're, and we're not going to have time to talk about this, but I really uh, appreciated how he mentioned the Growth Management Act that it needed to be looked at and. And, you know, I don't know whether, you know, it will get looked at, but I, I was encouraged that, you know, at least there's one voice saying, wait a minute, we got to look at this thing because, yeah. you know, things are changing. So, well, that being said, I, you know, he, he's certainly welcome on our show anytime. I hope he does find the ch a chance to come back and update us because really he's, you know, he's our connection here at Incarnation. And, um, you know, I, I, I fully believe that our elected officials have a responsibility to come and talk to us and let us know what's going on. And he has demonstrated Great. willing to do that. So yay for him. Well, you always do a good job of interviewing these these politicians. You know, you you, you get you get out of them um, things that the general public doesn't run doesn't have access to get out of. But most people, you know, can't ask the questions, and you ask for their on their behalf, and you do an excellent job. It's always uh, it's always good having you do that on on Valley Thank Talk. You. Um, one of the, the things that I want to make sure that we reinforce before we wrap up here is that because of the legislature meeting virtually, the process for getting input to your legislator is different. The process for testifying before a bill is different, but it actually might be more accessible for everybody. So I encourage everybody, you know, look into it, find out how you sign up to testify on these issues that, that they're having hearings and that you have a big interest in and participate. This year, all you have to do is turn on your computer and you can participate. And that's better than a two hour drive to Olympia any day. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. So that being said, that was our interview with Mark Mullet. Thank you very much, Jay, for popping by and, and uh, discussing the, what do, we, what do we call this color commentary? <laughs> the, <laughs> the wrap up here. And thank you for listening. You're listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. Join us again next week. Local news, local info, Valley 104.9 FM. The following newscast does not prescribe any medical advice, directly or indirectly, as a form of treatment for any medical problems without the advice of a physician or medical doctor. Welcome to That's Edible, I'm Daisy Oz. In this show, I'm going to focus on the potent benefits of reishi mushroom. Overall, the most important health benefits of reishi mushrooms include their ability to boost energy, reduce blood pressure, and slow the aging process. It's also known for its anti-cancer potential and enhancing cognitive abilities. Let's take a closer look at this medicinal mushroom. First, the reishi has anti-aging properties. With popular names such as King of Herbs and the 10,000-year-old mushroom, these ancient fungi have been highly praised in herbal medicine for thousands of years for their effects on longevity by boosting the immune system and preventing certain abnormal blood vessel formations. They also have antioxidants that neutralize free radicals, which can cause chronic diseases and premature aging. The triterpenes found in this type of fungi has the ability to reduce metastasis of cancerous cells and slows the progression of tumor growth. Another study found that the active ingredients of reishi mushroom extract can seek out and neutralize cancerous cells in the body. Reishi mushroom enhances cognitive abilities. Research has shown that the extracts of reishi can stimulate cognitive activity and display certain neuroprotective effects, which is a key preventative for neurological disorders. Then, one of the most important properties of reishi is their anti-inflammatory and respiratory capacity. This is partially why it can help with cognitive disorders, because they increase blood flow to the brain. For people suffering from arthritis, gout, asthma, bronchitis, or headaches, reishi extracts can be very helpful. And finally, this ancient fungi boosts energy and the immune system. Reishi mushrooms also contain beta-glucans, one of the most effective and powerful immune system boosters that we know of. With more beta-glucans in your body, you can protect yourself against a vast range of potential diseases and reduce the signs of aging. And with vibrant immunity, energy is naturally enhanced. 
What a noteworthy preventative from nature's backyard, the reishi mushroom. And yes, that's edible. The potent benefits of reishi mushroom was obtained from organicfacts.net. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. Be brave and add some edible plant medicine to your diet for healthier living. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. That's Edibles, produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chewila, Washington. My theme music was provided by Scott Holmes.